Previously on Flying the Line. In the early days of commercial aviation, accidents were far too often blamed on pilot error. In the mind of ALPA founder David Bankey, this was because the investigatory process that took place after an accident was far too often rigged against pilots and in favor of the airline operators, such as TWA and the government. In the hours following the crash of TWA Flight 6, which killed five passengers, including Senator Bronson Cutting of New Mexico, Banky mentioned that pilot fatigue was an important factor in accidents. Banky went on to say that a tired pilot is an unsafe pilot. This gave Alpa and Banky a springboard from which they could battle the waivers granted to TWA and other operators that allowed pilots to fly longer than eight hours at a time during a 24-hour period. Alpa won the fight, and the director of the Air Commerce Bureau canceled all waivers. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, abridged from the book Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 9, The Rise and Fall of the TWA Pilots Association, Part 2. After initially dismissing Banky's call for an independent investigation, and expressing confidence in the Commerce Department's accident investigation procedures, TWA officials Jack Fry and Paul Richter began to have second thoughts. It dawned on them that the cutting crash had heavy political overtones. Because of this, they didn't trust the bureaucrats. As a result, the airline executives became quiet, while allowing the TWA Pilots Association to continue blabbing in news releases about how wonderful the system was and occasionally taking a jab at Banky. The TWA leaders suspected the bureaucrats were unlikely to admit error themselves and might be searching for someone to throw under the bus. Thanks to the fuss Banky was making, a pilot scapegoat was not an option. That left TWA leaders with very few candidates and Fry and Richter had the uneasy feeling it was going to be them. If Banky and the Senate hadn't been breathing down the Commerce Department's neck, chances are that the old gentleman's agreement between management and the department would have held, and the whole scandal would have been smothered. Captain Bolton and his co-pilot Greeson would have been blamed, and it would have been the end of it. TWA knew that Bolton had done nothing wrong. However, it was up to management to keep silent in cases like this. But Fry and Richter couldn't be sure that this gentleman's agreement would continue to hold, so they had no choice but to hold up their end of the agreement. As May turned into June of 1935, everybody waited for the Commerce Department's formal report. The accident board heard testimony from 35 witnesses in six days, but nobody had even a hint of what its verdict would be. Then, on June 15, 1935, it hit like a bombshell. The Department of Commerce placed the entire blame on TWA and its pilots, citing a long string of rules violations. Oddly enough, in announcing the verdict, Secretary of Commerce Daniel Roper told reporters that in his opinion, the crash was due chiefly to bad weather, but in the next breath, levied several thousand dollars in fines against TWA. 
The final report focused on trivial infractions unrelated to the crash. The principal cause cited was that TWA had cleared the flight from Albuquerque to Kansas City with the radio transmitter not functioning on night frequency. Despite this, TWA argued fruitlessly that the applicable rules simply required a functioning transmitter, and the DC-2's day frequency was working just fine. And then there was conflicting testimony as to whether anyone had actually talked to the flight crew. TWA officials began to suspect perjured testimony on the part of government underlings, who even disputed if Bolton had actually received radioed instructions to proceed to Kirksville. The Commerce Department did admit that many of the infractions had nothing to do with the crash, like Bolton being a few days overdue on his quarterly physical, but they were added to the report anyway, thus making the case against TWA look even stronger. It was obvious to Fry and Richter that they were going to need the public investigation Banky had been insisting upon. Luckily for them, the Senate had already authorized it. But before the Senate inquiry could get underway, something curious happened. Because a malfunctioning radio had allegedly caused the crash, an unimportant federal agency, the Communications Commissions on Radio Broadcasting, a predecessor of the Federal Communications Commission, issued a report. The agency, staffed largely by political hacks, accused TWA of another 45 rules violations and flatly declared that the root cause of the crash was due to the company's radio system. Not only was aviation outside this agency's area of responsibility, the report coincidentally appeared just after the Commerce Department's. It was even suspected that the Commerce Department was the agency who instigated the Commission's report to begin with, as it reinforced the Department of Commerce's findings. Fry and Richter were furious over what they saw as a concerted bureaucratic effort to frame TWA. Back on Capitol Hill, Senator Royal Copeland of New York headed the Senate's inquiry into the death of Senator Cutting. At the first public session, Senator Copeland declared the purpose of the committee to be a sweeping investigation of commercial aviation safety standards. And, to achieve that end, Copeland vowed to take testimony from cabinet officers from all government departments and experts in every field of aviation. Due to Copeland's skillful handling of the probe, the process won praise from the New York Times, which had been openly critical at first. For the next seven months, every witness who had something relevant to say about aviation safety or the cutting crash got a respectful hearing from the Copeland Committee. The final report of the Copeland Committee was an almost complete vindication of TWA and its pilots. The committee cited Department of Commerce inefficiency as the principal cause of the accident and TWA's errors as merely contributing. The report had nothing but praise for the pilots and also highlighted the fallibility of ground aids to navigation. Following the report of the Copeland Committee, President Roosevelt ordered a shakeup in the Commerce Department. Eugene Vidal was the first to go, resigning in disgrace. While Banky was disappointed by Vidal's departure, he also began to suspect that the Copeland Committee had fallen into the hands of FDR's enemies. 
and indeed, the final report focused heavily on the administration's shortcomings. Ed Hamilton, ALPA's Washington representative, criticized the Copeland Committee for making personal attacks on individuals instead of recognizing the problem in the entire bureaucratic system. Ultimately, the Copeland Committee generated a reform movement in Congress that eventually brought about the Civil Aeronautics Act of 1938. It can be argued that in the end, Senator Cutting's death served a purpose, for it indirectly brought about a new regulatory agency to control commercial aviation completely outside the Commerce Department. It also brought about an indirect meeting of the minds between airline operators and their pilots. Following their harrowing encounter with professional bureaucrats out to save their own necks by blaming somebody else, TWA management dropped their opposition to Banky's initiative, the Independent Air Safety Board. It was clearly not in the industry's interests to have any regulatory agency investigating its own failures. The board was thus an integral part of the Civil Aeronautics Act package. And with the appointment of ALPA First Vice President Tom Harden of American Airlines as one of its three members, Banky had achieved a major victory, which lives on today as the National Transportation Safety Board. The cutting crash also spurred TWA to begin using cabin attendants once more. It had been the first airline to do so when it operated as transcontinental air transport, but in keeping with the image of 1920s aviation, they had been men and optional. Following the airline's near bankruptcy, such frills were dropped. United later began using young women as cabin attendants, but TWA resisted in doing so, preferring instead to have co-pilots double as stewards. During TWA's intensive internal investigation, their thinking about cabin attendants began to change. TWA's research reconstructed the flight in minute-by-minute detail, and its technical analysis was far in advance of anything the Commerce Department's official investigation attempted. Consequently, Fry and Richter knew much more about the crash than the government. They were also airmen first and businessmen second. Their handwritten notes on the flight, still available in TWA's archives, reveal an almost palpable anguish. They knew what Bolton and Greeson went through during the final moments, almost as if they had been with them, looking over their shoulders. Fry recognized that if a cabin attendant had been aboard, maybe he or she could have helped. Before the year was out, TWA had graduated its first class of stews copying United this time by using young women who also knew a good deal about airplanes. The cutting crash shocked Fry and Richter back into a stark realization of their almost total dependence on the men who actually made the machines go, who controlled the largest part of their corporate assets in the form of a fleet of very expensive aircraft. They needed to communicate with these men, freely and openly. In short, the cutting crash helped TWA's higher management accept the necessity of a strong, independent pilot voice in the industry. They may not always like that voice, and it would sometimes cause frustration and delay, but it was a safeguard the industry needed, 
and outfits like the TWA Pilots Association simply could not provide it. Perhaps, as a consequence of this new awareness, TWA softened its attitude. A de facto truce with ALPA ensued, and the TWA Pilots Association faded away without a trace. Within a year, TWA's pilots were nearly 100% in ALPA. Thank you for listening. This has been part two of chapter nine of Flying the Line by Georgie Hopkins. Copyright 1982. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alba.org or on iTunes, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production copyright ALPA 2020. All rights reserved.